You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. Welcome to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, I am your host, Daniel Lee, or photos by DOE. So today it's a bonus episode. It's going to be about my Canon EOS R6 review. No news, no what I've been up to, just straight into it. So the Canon EOS R6, I've owned it for about just under six months now, maybe five or so. I got it just before Christmas, a week or so before Christmas. So, you know, generally I try not to do a review after like a week or so of owning a camera, but really comes down, I feel like it, to how long you use a camera and how much you use it. You know, sometimes someone person may use it for like a week, but use it, you know, hundred hours worth of, I don't even know if that's possible, but hundred hours worth of um, shooting in that week. Whereas another person maybe only uses it once a week for a few hours. So it takes them a lot longer to not just get a feel for it. Cause you, know, you always get that honeymoon period with everything. So it may seem great at first, but after a while, there's something about it that you don't like that you didn't see initially. That's why I think it's kind of good to sit on reviews for a bit longer and not just sort of rush them out. In saying that, I'm going to be following pretty much the same format as a written review, talking about the same sort of topics, just so I can, you know, talk about me more casually. I'm not even going to look at what I wrote, just the headings and then just pretty much let it go, talk about it. So the first thing is the inevitable return and the reasons why. So to give a bit of context, you know, which I think is important, so you know what I'm comparing it to and what I used previously, started with the Canon 60. Now, this is a good thing to mention. While owning the 60, I bought the Canon EOS M3 and M5. So I got quite used to mirrorless and I really liked what they had. Once the 60 Mark II was announced, I sold the 6D and then used the M5 purely for about a month, which, you know, I loved it. And I actually felt I didn't even need the 60 Mark II. But for some reason, I still just, yep, I'll just go ahead, I'll buy it. Because, you know, I'm a bit of a full frame snob in that sense. So I used the 60 Mark II for about a year and I was enjoying it but you know it just wasn't mirrorless I wanted a full frame mirrorless at the time this is you know six months nine months before the EOS R would even be announced so Canon didn't have anything at the moment you did have the Sony a7 Mark III which you know at the time was amazing was well, still amazing camera but there's nothing that really beat it for the price as well especially you know because no Canon EOS R no Nikon Z6 because of this I made the switch to Sony was with them for about three years then last year Canon had to go and release the R6 and the R5. So, you know, someone that owned 60, 60 Mark II, I really wanted to own a 60 R6, you know, continue that lineage, continue that on. And, you know, with everything it had to offer, I just couldn't resist it. So I was like, I knew there's been rumors for quite some time of a Sony A7 Mark IV. So, you know, once that releases, the resale value on the A7 Mark III would drop quite a bit. So it's always good to sell your old body before the new ones announced and released to make the most of the resale value. And also with Christmas coming up, I knew there would be sales for the A7 Mark III. So I wanted to sell it as quickly as I could, which I did. And I managed to make a switch technically without any loss in a way. But at the same time, that initial kit, which you can see in the photos, the R5, I'm sorry, R6, the 85mm F2 and the RF 35mm F1.8, you know, I downsized lenses because I had more lens, a lot more lenses with Sony compared to with Canon, but the RF 85mm 2 pretty much was two in one for me, my 85 and my macro. So, which I don't do macro, it's just more, I like the close focus ability, but you know, 85s usually can't focus that close. So that solves a solution for me, which means I could happily switch without having to worry too much about, you know, having one less lens. 
I will read this part. So why I wanted to switch back to Canon. So a fully articulating screen. So everyone thinks you have to be a vlogger or you have to do video to find a use for this. So, you know, when you're holding a camera high up or low down, a tilt screen can definitely be good and it doesn't really change your you know, center of gravity or balance or anything in that way when you're trying to balance level the camera. But if you're doing vertical images, which I like to do shoot vertical a lot, it does not help you at all. It's useless, completely useless. You might as well have it stuck to the camera because it's the exact same when you're shooting vertical. So that is one reason why I love a fully articulating screen. Also, you know, if we travel and I want to be in front of the camera with my girlfriend, she wants us to take photos. Having that screen makes posing and everything so much easier. Most importantly, you'll see with my still life photography. So in the review towards the end, there's a picture of the M50 Mark II and the Sigma 56mm f1.4. So the way I shoot this is I have the camera there. I have my strobe, the 8200 camera left and about 45 degrees. And you'll see this bokeh in the background. So what I actually have is I have a like a, it's kind of like a fake textured background hanging, you know, pinned up against the wall for that background. And then I'm actually holding fairy lights in place there. So rather than, you know, sometimes I'm lazy to take the time to sort of stick them up, you know, get two light stands and perfectly wrap them around, make sure they stay in place, clamp them. If I'm doing something quick like I was that day, I just stand in front of the camera and hold them there. So now if I say want to use the app, I need a hand free. I need to either do a self-timer, you know, start the self-timer in that. But I don't really, the app is good, but you know, it's a lot better compared to the Sony app because you can actually autofocus with it. But it's just not as convenient as just using a remote trigger or something and having the fully articulating screen. Because what I do is I have it facing, you know, me when I'm in front of the camera, even though I'm not in the frame, and I'm holding the bokeh lights there, the fairy lights there, and I'm moving them around to make sure they're in the right position for when I take the photo. This isn't possible with a tilt screen possible with the app but it's just more clunky and then you have to make sure your phone doesn't go to sleep message come through that kind of stuff call come through not that anyone ever calls me but but yeah otherwise it's more of a hassle compared to doing it this way it's just simpler and that fully articulated screen makes a big difference honestly for steals now both slots are uhs2 now you know there's a lot of criticism when a camera only has one sd card slot or one card slot to me it's not that black and white about it so for me personally, when I had the A7 Mark III, the whole time I used it, I did not, you know, shoot redundant or whatever you want to call it. I did not back up and use both card slots. Number one, with the A7 Mark III, it only had one UHS-2 slot and one UHS-1 slot. So kind of makes it, you know, pointless having that second slot when it's not as fast because it's just going to bottleneck and slow the camera down. Two, the other point is I'm not doing any professional work. I don't care, you know, majority of the time if in touch wood, you know, something did happen. Not that I've ever had that issue, but Maybe if I'm traveling, I'll do it. But you know, with the R6, both slots are UHS-2, which is a lot better. In terms of the rear screen, again, it's a much, it's not much higher. It's a higher resolution compared to the Sony, which is a really bad screen. The EVF is noticeably better. The first time I got to experience a higher resolution EVF was two sort of instances. Someone's EOSR when I was out shooting, let me have a look through it, and it looked amazing. And then when I was at the airport one time waiting for a flight, a bit bored, looking around the DFO, whatever it's called. I tried a Nikon Z6 one and that EVF blew me away of how much better it was. I remember that rest of that trip, I was a bit like, you know, weird looking inside the EVF of the Sony a7 Mark III because of how poor the quality is compared to that Z6. And this Canon one is the same quality as the Z6 and honestly, it's so good to look through. There's, you know, the option of the higher refresh rate. It does drain the battery, but to be honest, 
I like the best experience, so I always have it on the high refresh rate. Even if I'm not shooting something that requires it, I still keep it that because I can't be bothered changing the settings. The next one is a huge one for me. So this isn't unique to Canon, but Sony don't have it. You know, as well, the A7 Mark III didn't. I don't think any newer bodies have it, but a bulb timer. So if you're like me, you shoot your long exposures. Having a bulb timer means you do not need a wireless trigger. So how it works is say I want to do an exposure that is two minutes on my old Sony or, you know, even technically on the M50 Mark II, which I own, you have to set the exposure, you know, to bulb. And then you'd have to either do it with your hand to start it and stop it, which obviously would create camera shake or use a remote trigger, which to start and stop the exposure. With the bulb timer, you can just set how long you want the exposure to be. So as a bit of an example, when I went to America, to San Francisco, I went to shoot the Bay Bridge, Golden, sorry, Golden Gate Bridge, and I actually forgot my remote trigger. So I had to limit myself to 30 second exposures and I couldn't even use my filters, if I remember, because, because of that, because I couldn't go over 30 seconds because I didn't have a remote trigger. And when you're on a holiday, especially, phone battery is a precious thing. So I probably could have used my phone, but I think on that day it was quite low already and we had to order Uber and, you know, we need maps to work our way around, that kind of stuff. And both of me and my girlfriend, like, always on our phone. Well, technically not me as much on holiday, but I didn't have much battery from hotspotting her, I think, because I had the SIM. So if I had this bulb feature, I could have just set it, set a two-second timer so there's no camera shake, and it'll stop automatically at the end of that two minutes. So the bulb timer for someone who shoots long exposures is a really highly unrelated, underrated and amazing feature that you have to use if you have it on your computer and you do long exposures. Funny enough, I've listed this as a bonus, which it is, but for time lapses. So on the Osmo Pocket, which I have when you shoot a time lapse, and I think the 60 Mark II and most newer Canon bodies do it as well, it can do a time lapse and it'll actually make it into a video for you. Whereas on Sony, it just gives you the raw images and you have to actually make your own time lapse. I'm sure more people would probably appreciate the Sony way because, you know, you have more control over it. Whereas for me, I don't really care. I just, you know, want to do the time lapse. So having it in that video is more convenient and it is a good thing for me. In terms of autofocus, Sony never got the real-time tracking update. Well, not Sony, the A7 Mark III. So the autofocus wasn't that great with tracking. I find it would always jump around from subject to subject. With the R6, this has pretty much the same AF module as the 1DX Mark III. And it honestly shows the way it tracks the speed, the accuracy is next level. Pretty much, it's noticeably better for tracking. For normal, say static or very sort of easy to follow subjects, I'd say the A7 Mark III still is good, but if you just want any tiny amount of tracking, the Canon blows it out of the water in that sense. But it is a newer body, so that is expected. That is okay. Doesn't mean the A7 Mark III is bad. It's just this camera is four years newer, so you'd expect it to be better in that sense. A minor thing, but a good one for me, which is that the shutter closes when changing lenses. I haven't noticed any dust spots, touch wood yet on this camera, thanks to that, but who knows how well it will last, you know, over time. I do sometimes give a very gentle spray, don't want to damage the shutter at the same time. But, you know, for me, this is a really great feature. It should be optional on every single camera, regardless of brand. The touchscreen is so much better as well on Canon. So as you know, if you don't know with Sony, their touchscreens aren't fully functional. You can usually tap the focus and that's it. Whereas I find changing settings on the Canon is a lot faster thanks to touchscreen. With the A7 Mark, not so the A7, with the Canon EOS M50 Mark II, even though it lacks the dials, it's still not that hard to change settings because of the touchscreen. And I find that when it comes to the touch and drag on the R6, it's a lot more responsive as well, which is, you know, comes down to the more responsive touchscreen. Also, yeah, last one, Canon do have a better app. So 
with the Sony one, you can't really independently focus and then take the photo. It's pretty much all in one. Whereas at least with Canon, I like how in the app you can focus the shot, leave it and then take the photo, which is good. One thing I didn't mention as well, the leveling system on the Sony is horrible. You, If you look at any forum, people always complain about it. For some reason, it's just got too much variance of how straight straight is sort of thing. Whereas with the Canon, it's still not, I'd say 100% or perfect, but it's a lot, lot better. And I don't find I have to, you know, straighten my images in post as much or at all, thanks to that. So now, you know, some people, especially if you're in the Sony camp, be wondering why don't just wait for the A7 Mark IV. It's the same situation as when I originally swapped. If something good is available now, why wait? You know, maybe if it's a month or two, but you don't even know. So if we go back to December, you know, some rumors were saying, oh yeah, January A7 Mark IV is going to be dropping. Well, it's now May and we still don't have any word over it. So, you know, if I had waited, my resale value on my camera would be going down. Price of the R6, you know, that's actually gone up a bit higher again now. So I'm glad I swapped, you know. You can't be too drawn and tied to a brand. That brand's not loyal to you. They don't give you a discount for the more years that you shoot with them or for the more gear you own of them. So why, you know, there is no point. Get the tool that's best for you and that's it. Now, in terms of the next section, so a great balance of new and familiar. So when you first touch the R6, you know, when you look at it, if I rem if you remove the badge from that and then remove the badge from, say, something like a 5D4 or a Canon 60 Mark II, you probably, you know, might even be convinced from the front anyway that it's actually a DSLR. It's smart because, you know, a lot of people you read online say, you know, they just want the mirrorless tech in a DSLR body, which is what Canon has done. For me, I'm not big on big and heavy camera gear. I do have a bad back, so carrying heavy stuff, you know, doesn't really work well for me. The 5D Mark IV, for example, the DSLR, even if I could have afforded one, I wouldn't want one over a 6D Mark II purely because of the fact the size and the weight. Whereas with the R5 and the R6, there's barely any difference in the size and weight. No matter which one you hold, it's sort of the same. So in my period myself here, I could see myself owning one if, you know, my budget allowed, I would actually get an R5 or an R6 wouldn't matter to me in that sense because the weight is not a factor anymore. It's more just the price and if I want that high megapixels or not. In terms of, you know, when you go back to Canon or if you're, you know, used to it, using the body, it feels no different to any other body. The main difference that I found was just that, you know, the way the AF works and a few more settings. So if you're not familiar, they have AF cases for servo. So what this does is it changes the way your autofocus works in servo. So for example, if you set it to auto, it'll pick which case it thinks is most suitable for that scenario. Or if you choose like case two, it'll track the subjects, ignoring any possible obstacles. And case four is, you know, a subject that accelerates or decelerates quickly, maybe like a kid running around that all of a sudden run and stop and look at something and then run again, you know, that kind of thing. Awesome sports, you know. Either way, like there's a lot to customize on the camera, but at the same time, it's that same camera that you're used to using. You know, the same as with M5, when I used to use it, you pick it up, you set it, you know exactly where everything is. At the same time, I didn't find the menus on Sony as bad as everyone states. Sure, they were a lot more complicated. They give a lot more options, but you just set the My Menu and then you're set. You don't even need to look at it again, which is what I do with Canon now. As soon as I got the camera, I set the My Menu up, good to go. And that's pretty much it. Now, in terms of why this body is almost perfect for me. So, you know, almost because there's always some caveat, something that's not quite right on it, which I'll go into next section. But for me, there's quite a few areas. So first we'll talk about autofocus. 
So all the focus on this camera is amazing. So as you know, with any mirrorless camera, it's not communicating. Usually before the lens will communicate with the mirror, the mirror communicate with the sensor. And then because of that, there's a range opportunity for miscommunication. That's why you get shots that back focus, front focus, and that sort of stuff. With a mirrorless camera, the lens is communicating directly with the sensor. So it's a lot faster. It's a lot more accurate. You know, you got pretty much 100% of the frame, almost, I think it's 100% horizontal, 90% vertical that you can actually autofocus, which is amazing. Not to mention just the quality and the tracking and the speed of this autofocus. So when I was shooting Sony, they, you know, I'm pretty sure they have them everywhere. They had this event where you could go and try shooting birds, which I really enjoyed. Using the A9 Mark II, that was really fun. And that body is great for tracking. I'd probably say it's, you know, even though that's meant to be the flagship sports body before, I honestly feel the R6 could probably keep up with it, especially if someone knows what they're doing more than me. Now, because that I didn't have a body with that great tracking, I never really looked into birds more and that, but because going back to the Canon R6, because it's got that great, not only just normal animal autofocus, but fast autofocus, I actually can try new types of photography, which is bird photography and wildlife photography. In all honesty, I'm probably horrible at doing it because even now I've barely tried it because I tried to go to a park one day, walked around for an hour in the morning, just found ducks and that was it. The lighting was always poor because, you know, I don't really like to get up too early on my day off. And also I don't really like nature that much. I'm more of a city person. So going even to that park near us, I was sort of like, oh, I don't know where to look, don't know what to do. Just full of bats everywhere because oh, flying foxes, I think they are technically. But either way, it's something I have to work on. But now that I have a body with that higher level of autofocus, I know for a fact that's something I can try. In terms of animal autofocus, I'd say it works really well. There was one day we went to the zoo, we were there for about six hours. It's a bit of a funny story because I was trying to use it and I was pretty disappointed. It would kind of focus on the eye, but then not really. And there was very few animals it worked with. So I thought, you know, this is pretty poor performance. It's meant to be this amazing thing. After about maybe two or three hours, I just remembered, hey, what do I have the eye autofocus set to? Because you do need to, you know, it's best to set it to either animal, human, or no priority. I had it set to human, of course. As soon as I set it to animal, it would always hit the focus. Now, another thing to keep in mind, I noticed that when I'd say focus on the animal, say like the elephant, it would focus on its eye for a bit, but it'll kind of jump to the body a bit and then jump to the eye. It's not like a human eye. When you focus on the human eye, it sticks on it and it does not leave it. Whereas with the animal, I did notice it jumped around a bit. I don't know if that's due to the fact that I had my AF server on auto and not on case two, which would just stick to it no matter what obstacles. It's something I'll have to try again another time. Maybe not the zoo, but we know if I ever go shoot any more nature. But I do think it may have been that. I can't say for certain, but that is the impression it gave me that it does jump around a bit for animals. In terms of humans, flawlessly, I noticed the IAF works so better. So what I, you know, for example, I was going to take a photo of my girlfriend walking with her mom and her sister. When I was talking to her, I already started focusing on her eye. So then she's talking to me, focus on the eye, then she turns around and starts walking. And it just kept focused on her exactly, like as if it was still focusing on the eye in the back of her head or something. It tracks that well. I like as well how before you even press autofocus and focus on anything, you actually see the box around someone's eye. And from there, you can use a joystick to switch eyes if you want. And then the second you focus, it already knows where it is. And you already know where it's gonna, which eye it's going to focus on because of that box. That sort of stuff, amazing to me. In terms of lenses, so that's another sort of big area for me. When I used to use Canon, I was 
you know, a bit of a third-party snob. I'd owned a few Sigma lenses over the years, the 85mm f1.4, 51.4, but I was never that big on third-party lenses like Tamron and Samyang, that kind of stuff. For me, I always felt there was something you have to give up, which is usually, you know, autofocus, and that's going to be an issue. In terms of Sony, it's not, I've never seen any actual proper confirmation from it, but from what I, you know, everyone says, Sony actually share their third party, like their AF algorithm with third parties. So when you use a third party lens on Sony, it focuses much better. Not only because mirrorless, but you don't have to worry about that focus inconsistencies. When I was there, I used, you know, I own Samyang, I own Sigma, I own Tamron. Tamron lenses blew me away so much so that as soon as I got back to Canon, even though there's no sort of third party lenses aside from a few from Samyang, there's a massive library of EF third party lenses that you can use. And if you get the EF to RF mount adapter, they honestly work like native. So there's two EF lenses I had, or one that I had, which was the Canon EF 50mm f1.8. So when I had that lens originally on my 60 Mark II, I hated it. It was soft, poor focus. On the M5, it honestly was soft wide open as well. On the A7 Mark III, I barely tried it. It was a bit better, but still quite bad. So I convinced it was just the lens. I hadn't even, you know, I owned the R6 for ages and I never even thought to even try that lens because I completely forgot it existed. So I ended up trying that one with the adapter and it was amazing. It was like a brand new lens. It did not focus like the old lens. Like, well, not the old lens. It was the same lens, but it didn't focus like it did before. It was tack sharp wide open. It was amazed me so much so that I actually ended up ended up selling it, but then buying the RF version just because it may be like 50mm again because of how good that lens is. And the RF 50mm f1.8 is an amazing lens. In terms of third-party lenses, getting back to that, I knew that I wouldn't be able to afford the Canon RF 100-500. So what I did is I got the Tamron 100-400mm lens, which is a pretty decent lens. I believe it's f4 to f6.3 or f4.5 to f6.3. It's not too big. I did get the tripod collar. I was trying to decide between this lens or the Canon EF 70 to 300. I think it's like F4 to F5.6 Mark II lens. So that lens is really nice. I'm honestly still kind of tempted by it because the main reason I went for the Tamron is because that extra 100 millimeters if I wanted to shoot birds and that kind of stuff. But now that I actually have it, I don't even do wildlife. I only use it for cityscapes. And with, you know, most of the cityscapes I've shot here in Sydney, They've all been quite like in the wider end, like 100 to 200 or so millimeters, nothing even close to 400. I thought I'd be shooting a lot at 400, but sadly, no, everything's quite wide. Because of this, that means, you know, I could have easily got that Canon lens, which to be honest, I still could. I could probably sell the Tamron and have the money to get that lens. But for now, I'm happy with the Tamron, so I'll see how it goes. But the main point is, you know, you have so many third party options and they actually perform really well. In terms of autofocus, I feel like it performs really, really great. Now, you got to keep in mind, I don't never owned 100 to 400 before of anything like Canon, Sony, Sigma, Tamron. So I don't know if this lens is horrible for autofocus, but I just don't know any better or if it's actually, you know, pretty damn good for the money, which most people who use a lot of different ones have said that it's a great lens. So even though there isn't any native glass at the moment from third parties, don't let that hesitate you to getting an R6 because as I said, so many EF options and they work like native with the adapter. For me, the main sort of thing I think that will happen with third-party lenses end of this year is when we'll start to see those lenses come out. There was one interview Sigma did one time where they said it takes them roughly two to three years to develop a lens. 
Now, we know that Canon's not sharing their AF algorithm with third parties, which means you could assume that sometime after the ERF and the Z mount came out, that is when they started designing lenses. Well, first they have to, they said it's a very hard process, so they have to reverse engineer it and then, you know, do everything else. So I would say, you know, because EOS R should be three years old at the end of this year. So around them, that's when we'll start to get to see it. But that's just my speculation, purely everything, all speculation. In terms of the big one, image quality and dynamic range. So, you know, for many people, this is the staple, the number one thing you have to care about when it comes to a camera. The Sony a7 Mark III's, you know, Sony sensors in general are known for their dynamic range. 15 stops of dynamic range on the a7 Mark III. On that camera, I could easily expose for the highlights, recover the shadows in most situations. Sometimes you get really noisy images, really depends on the situation, but majority of the time it was really great. Since getting the Canon, I've been in a few situations where I've tried to bracket images or, you know, expose different ways. But what I've found is, which you can see an example of an image in the review, you can shoot for the highlights and recover the shadows with no, pretty much no noise. Just like I did on Sony, I did not have to change the way I edit at all. So what I would do generally with any camera, whether it was a Sony A7 Mark III, the R6, 60 Mark II, I'd usually take, say I'm doing a cityscape long exposure, I do one normal image, you know, just sort of middle exposure, try and balance it as much as possible. And I do one that's sort of bracketed. So I try and edit the bracketing one often, but then that doesn't turn out. So then I go to the single one and that image had enough dynamic range just to have everything clean and nice all in one photo. I did that a lot with Sony. And then when I tried that with the Canon, I thought, you know, I'll just go back to bracketing like I always do. But I actually found it easier to edit that one single image that had all the detail in it because the sensor does retain that detail. So there's a lot of talk about Canon baking and noise reduction, that kind of stuff at the low ISOs. The main difference is if they didn't tell you, would you be able to notice the difference? I know I can't. You only notice it when you study charts. So even if they are doing it, I honestly don't care. In terms of like high ISO and that, high ISO is pretty good on this camera. When I use it at the zoo, that's probably where I've used it high ISO the most. I was pretty happy with the images, how they turned out. They're a little bit of noise, but it's very easy to clean up. To me, I think that's more important. You could have a camera, say, that doesn't have as much noise, but the noise is really ugly and hard to remove and clean up. Whereas if this camera, if you use something like Topaz Denoise, you can easily clean images up. Like I have an image in there. I think of it was a snake one that's at 25 ISO 25,600. Ran it through Topaz Denoise looks amazing. You could not even tell. You probably would think that, hey, is this, you know, just an ISO 100? Are these fake EXIF info? But no, it's actually just that clean once you use some noise reduction. So I did sort of mention before about the EVF and the rear screen. I personally use the EVF a lot more. I don't like shooting with the camera out in front of me. Well, generally, if the camera's on a tripod, rear screen. If it's in my hands, EVF. But yeah, it's pretty much not much to say else about that. Night and day better compared to the Sony screens. I absolutely love it. One thing that's sort of not directly related to the camera, but third-party accessories. So if you are like me and you shoot on a tripod a lot, the L bracket is something that can be very important. So I've always used small rig ones. When I shot with Sony, I had a small rig one, which I liked everything, except I did find it moved a lot. So, you know, I was kind of like, should I really get another small rig one for Canon? But I noticed these little spikes, like little thing on the pins. So when I got the Canon, camera, the Canon L bracket and the camera, I realized that those pins are to there to hold it in place. So it doesn't move at all, which is a lot better compared to the Sony one. So 
And also it does have the cutout for the fully articulating screen. So all these kind of accessories can also make or break a system. You know, say for example, you run a lens, but can't take filters that can actually make or break something for you. If you're a landscape photographer and only shoot like 14 millimeter or wider, but you want a lens that can have filters, the Nikon Z system there, 14 to 30 millimeter F4 can take filters, I'm pretty sure. So that there is something that sort of, you know, would make or break for you. As I mentioned before, the fact that you don't really need a remote trigger if you are shooting long exposures, that's amazing. I used to use this infrared one, which the kind of thankfully the R6 does have the infrared sensor. If you get something like an M50 Mark II, sadly it doesn't, it only has Bluetooth. Because of that, I did buy the Canon BRE1, which it was meant to be used only with the M50 Mark II. But when I'm doing something like, you know, in front of the camera and I need to use a timer, I actually do like the BRE1, which works with the R6 as well. Because, you know, with an IR remote, you have to be in line of sight with the camera. Whereas with this, you can do it from anywhere. In terms of, you know, memory card slots, for me, it's just, I use it as storage, honestly. I have two UHS-2 cards, one card in the slot one, obviously, which is what I shoot with. And then the second slot's use as storage. So if I forget to take my first card, which I do often, once I take it out of the camera, then, hey, I just put it back. I just swap cards around. That's pretty much what I use it for. Obviously, if I travel, I'll probably start shooting, you know, backup of everything so I don't lose my photos. But until then, you know, I like it the way it works like this. The big thing to mention as well is probably price. So I don't like comparing prices as much as well because it's very different per region. Places, some places rip you off, some places don't. Like here in Australia, we get ripped off a lot, to be honest. So the R6 launched at 2499 US dollars. I think it was around 4300 AUD when it first released here as well, which is a massive, massive inflation. It should have been like 3200 to 3300 at most. Some people, you know, if you're in Australia, you're probably thinking GST, import tax. It does not matter. Honestly, it does not matter. I've covered that before. They, you know, the cameras are manufactured in Asia, Japanese company. It doesn't matter. You don't have to convert from USD. A lot of gear, camera gear you'll find if you convert from, say, Sony gear, especially like the Sony 24mm F1.4GM, that one's about 1400 US dollars. If you convert that to AUD and then add 10% GST, it's like it's $2,200 AUD or something around there, obviously depending on the rate on the day. Whereas I bought that lens for like $1,750, $1,700. It goes for that price quite often. It does not matter. It's just up to the stores and the suppliers and that how much they want to charge and how much profit they want to make. So as an example, the R6 launched at $2,499 USD and it's still at that price. Whereas it launched 4300 AUD here and I've seen it go as cheap as 3400 That's a massive, massive difference. I bought mine for around, I think it was around 37, 38. So not too bad. I did pay more than I had to, but you know, I wanted at the time. And I've used it so much since then, so it is worth it. For the price, if you're in the US, I honestly think this body is easily hands down one of the best cameras you can get for the money. It is a bit more of a premium over the old 1999 price that both, you know, that the 60 Mark II used to have, the A7 Mark III had, but you get so much value in that one camera, that 1DX level. The 1DX sensor, 1DX Mark III sensor, the same autofocus, fully articulating screen, beautiful EVF, great build, dual UHS-2 card slots. You get so much value in it for that money. But here in Australia, it's still good value if you get it on sale. Because honestly, you should not be paying, I think the most, 36, 3800 AUD. Anything more, you are being ripped off, honestly. I'm not too sure of what prices in other currencies 
would be like. So I don't know how they would compare. You know, everything states USD pricing. And obviously I live in Australia. That's why I only cover those two prices because that's all I really know. But, you know, be welcome if in the comments, if you got it for a really good price overseas, if you pay Bitcoin and manage to get it even better with crypto. I wish I did that back then, but who knows? That's a lot of money to spend <laughs> and convert. So now the last part, which is the minor gripe. So there's only like, say, two or three things that I do not like about this camera. So the first one, you know, you're probably thinking I'm going to say megapixels, which I haven't really talked about. But to me, 20 megapixels does not bother me. I went from the A7 Mark III, which is 24. I got the M50 Mark II, which is 24. Going down to 20, I didn't feel like I was missing out because number one, I don't really crop my images. There's very few images I actually crop. I try to get it as close to what I like it in camera, especially with cropping. I just generally don't do it. You have stuff like Gigapixel AI, which make up for it now. You can just two times, four times the resolution and crop it down and still get quite a bit of resolution. But in terms of, you know, megapixels, it does not bother me. I, you know, know people who refuse to use anything lower than say 30 or something, but then they only post on Instagram, which is like 1028 by 1028, which is only like one or two megapixels. But they need, need, need to have something that's 30 megapixels in resolution. It does not matter because you can have a 30 megapixel, which is just the size of the image, but then the pic individual pixels aren't that sharp. Whereas I've seen reviews, I think Gordon Lang and there was one other review I've seen where they found this actually out-resolved the 60 Mark II, which is 26 me megapixels. And it could even match the EOS R in some tests, which is 30 megapixels. So that, you know, is an issue for some people, but it's not an issue for me. The main issue is number one, which is a very minor, minor thing. With the A7 Mark III and the old M5, I don't know why Canon stopped doing this on their bodies, but say you take a photo, a portrait orientation photo. If you look at it when you're holding the camera horizontally, the image will be displayed horizontally. I mean, yeah. Then if you turn it to a vertical thing, it'll fill the entire frame. So you want to have those black bars on the side. So it pretty much matches however you hold the camera. Auto rotates. It doesn't rotate the actual image, you know, so when you're viewing in post, but it just, the way you view it rotates. That is like a huge flaw for me, which, you know, I don't know why can't, they can't do it anymore when they used to do that. The other one, which is more of an issue for me, and if I had to choose one or two, I'd rather this one. On Sony, when you take photos, you can enable zebra stripes in the EVF and in the rear screen. So what that is, is so say you're taking of a phone with quite a lot of, uh, taking a photo with quite a lot of dynamic range. You've got super bright highlights, super dark shadows. If you increase your exposure, once it gets to a certain point, and the highlights are blown, you can actually have warning zebra lines over the highlights to let you know that your highlights are going to blow. So what you can do is you can get to that point where they're about to blow. Once you know they're about to blow, go down one or two thirds of a stop. And then you know you, they're, you know, like obviously there's no detail on them at the moment, but they're not blown. You can recover it. And that way, because you're that much bit higher, the shadows don't have to be too underexposed. So you'll get them a bit cleaner as well. In Canon, all you can do is take the photo and then you can turn it so it can tell you if the highlights are blown afterwards once you take the image, which is obviously nowhere near as convenient, nowhere near as good. They need to add the zebra highlights. They've done it for video, but they haven't done it for stills. So please, please Canon add this, you know. I've seen a lot of people requesting it, especially, you know, people who, like me who have gone to Sony and come back. We all miss it. We want that back. So please add it in. If Canon were to add these two features in, it would honestly be the perfect camera for me. I cannot think of anything else that I would change about it. At the moment, you know, my current gear lineup with this camera is I got the 30, RF 35mm f1.8 IS. Works beautifully with it. I'm going to have separate reviews for all these lenses as well. That's why I don't really discuss it on here. I have the RF 50mm f1.8. Beautiful lens, so small and light with the R6. I can just carry it out and it does not feel heavy at all. 
The RF 85mm F2 was a game changer for me, made me want to switch back as well. And then the Tamron 100-400, to that lens, you know, works really great as well. So I got pretty much all the focal lengths covered, mostly that I use. I do need an ultra wide angle. I'm still waiting. I want a prime. I want, my dream lens would be like a 16mm f2 or f2.8 prime that's nice and small for travel. I don't really care about having something big or fast and I don't want to zoom. I find that when I travel, I just use the 35mm lens 90% of the time and the only time I use the zoom is when I need to do a cityscape. Because of this, that's why I just need a prime. But, you know, they're not very common, sadly. They need more 18mm and 16mm, these ultra wide angle primes. It's either 20 or 14. We need something between there. We need like a 16 or 17mm prime. I'd be so happy. I'd pre-order that. I'd sell who knows what <laughs> to get that. But I need that lens. But that's pretty much it for me. So if you look at the written review, you'll see a whole bunch of photos that I've taken over the past five or so months. Quite a bit of variety, I'd say, the least amount. You know, there's some street photos in there, some portraits, lots of cityscapes, a lot of still life, a few nature ones as well. If you want to know if I would recommend this camera, yes, I would definitely recommend it to someone. Like, if you use it, I don't see why you wouldn't like it. Unless you want to crop your photos, you know, you wouldn't need that 50 mega, 48 megapixel or whatever for the Canon R5. You want to crop it down to 3 megapixels, then, you know, personally, I think you either need a different lens or you need to change your technique. But that's just me. I think this camera is great. I have zero buyer's remorse. Would I, you know, use Sony again? Yes. If I could, if my budget allow it, I would own a Nikon body. I'd own a Sony, a Fuji, a Canon. I'd be a camera collector. I would own every brand. I am not brand loyal. I am not a fanboy. I like them all. If I could have afforded it, I would have kept the A7 Mark III and the Sigma 8514 and then got everything else on Canon because I love the 85mm DN art that much on that, you know, but hey, it's life. We have a limit. We have a budget. So it is what it is. But I hope you enjoyed this review. If you did, please subscribe. I'll be doing more reviews for all my RF lenses. I'll be reviewing the 35mm F2, not the, sorry, the M50 Mark II, which will be soon. Um, I do a podcast episode every fortnight. I don't release that many posts. So if you're worried about getting spammed by daily stuff or everything else, do not have to worry. That's not me. I don't do that. Just Fortnightly podcast, you can suggest topics if you want. You can see my posts. I often, you know, notify people when new gears are released just so you can see all the sort of videos and that, round them up for you. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure to subscribe. See ya.